0: It's Sarah from the podcast you're about to listen to. If you want to follow along with the slides I'm showing my guests at home, you can find links to all of those slide decks uh, in the Patreon posts. Uh, you don't need to be a patron. They're in the public posts. But if you throw a couple dollars our way, you do get access to some monthly bonus episodes and to our Discord server where we sit and talk about, well, a lot of things, mostly kelp. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at from the FromTheSeaPod and through Gmail at It Came From The SeaPod if you want to reach out with questions or encouragement. I welcome any feedback I can get. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to It Came From The Sea, a podcast about all things ocean science and ocean adjacent. I'm your host, Sarah. With me, as always, is uh, my favorite Sam, and potentially your favorite Sam. Hello, Sam. I'm everybody's favorite Sam. Hello. I think so. And if you're not their favorite Sam, they're...
1: They're wrong. Wrong. That's fine. Yeah. They can be wrong.
0: (laughs) We're science people, and that's a science fact.
1: Yep. You heard it here, folks. Oh, I was...
2: (laughs)
0: Yeah, I was going to do um, pronouns, and then I forgot. So my pronouns are she and also they. Sam, your pronouns are? She and her. Awesome. So there we go. It's been a minute. It has. Last, yeah, that's. I'm not going to lie. I've probably spent uh, about 60 hours playing old Legend of Zelda games that, in the past month.
1: That's fair. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've been playing my time at Portia.
0: Oh, I don't know what that is. What's it's, that about?
1: It's basically Stardew Valley, but. <laughs> I've been playing it nonstop for like a week. Which is basically Harvest <laughs> Moon, Friends of Mineral Town. Which is, yeah, basically Animal Crossing. I don't know which one came first.
0: <laughs> I just I like to chop down Animal virtual Crossing little
1: trees about. and stuff, so.
0: I get that. I spend a lot of time fishing in games. Oh, okay. Like, if. No, I don't like games that are just fishing, but if a game <laughs> has a fishing mini game, for some reason. That is that just makes my brain very happy. You know what else? And I. Oh, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Oh no. What?
1: What? Do it.
0: Segway. Oh no, I
1: had a segue and I lost it. I'm sorry.
0: You know what else makes our brains happy? Oh yeah. What? Oh, I thought that's what that was your segue. Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to try uh, to tie in fish. You know what else has fish? Um, the ocean. Oh. But
0: I've heard that said, but yeah, that I'm not a marine weak. biologist, so I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't prove that. Um. No, that was fine. That was excellent. (laughs) Man, I've just been playing so much Zelda. Okay. Uh, But I did finally get around to uh, finishing reading chapter two. Okay. And today uh, I'm going to try to relay this information to you. It was a very dense chapter. There's a lot of just stuff Mm -hmm. that is explained very well. um, But also a lot of stuff that I don't think I could properly explain to you without being able to, like, point to diagrams Uh and wave my arms around a whole lot.
1: Is this one, like, more science and less, like, personal drama between petty
0: scientists? (laughs) Yeah, you nailed it. Okay. There's, like, allusions to petty drama, and then there's a description of some amount of petty drama. um, But much, much more, like, descriptions of science and, like, science history. Oh, okay. That I found very interesting to read, but also... um, it was stress. That's it was like my anxiety was spiking as I was reading it, and I'm like, "Wow, this is really interesting." I have no idea how to, like, how do I explain this? Yeah, um, and then I realized I just don't have to. Okay, That's... so, you know, um, there is there is a story to be told, but it is it's going to be just a fraction of what this chapter was about. Okay, um, so this is uh, chapter two of Science on a Mission by Dr. Naomi Oreskes. And in this chapter, we're going to talk about um, a man named Henry Stommel and his, like, theorizing about deep ocean circulation. Okay. And if I get lost in the weeds, Sam, um, you'll have to make, like, a Pokemon trainer and, like, walk through that long grass to find me. I will try my best. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. So we have talked about deep ocean circulation before. Uh-huh. And abyssal currents and basically now oceanographers kind of they pretty much understand right mm-hmm. we pretty much understand how water gets really really cold in a couple of areas um, in particular around Greenland and Iceland and around uh, the Weddell Sea which is off the coast of Antarctica mm-hmm. the water there gets so cold that even though it is not very salty it still gets more dense than the water around it and it manages to sink all the way to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, what we probably didn't touch on too much is there's also areas where water gets either gets pretty cold or is just so salty that it becomes more dense than the surrounding water. Mm-hmm. And it will sink part of the way down into the water column. Okay. And either way, we now know that once the water sinks down below the surface, it will travel throughout the entirety of the oceans and eventually find its way back up, like mix itself back up into the surface water. And that whole cycle from sinking down to the bottom to coming back up someplace, usually in the Pacific or Indian probably, takes about one to two thousand years. That's quite a long so, time. Yeah. for Yeah. You know, it's not very fast. Uh, and... When you think about how slow that movement is, and we're talking, you know, one, I think one to three centimeters per second, and the depth at which it's sinking down, which like the ocean on average is 3.7 kilometers in depth, hard to measure, hard to measure, hard to get something down that deep that can stay kind of like, you know, first you have to get it down into the deep water and then it has to be able to sit there and track movement without you know, itself moving around too much. right? Uh, Yeah, so people just had no idea. Yeah. No idea what was going on down there. That's fair.
1: The science bucket Uh, can't tell you everything.
0: The science bucket comes up, Sam. Oh. (laughs) I was so excited to read about the science bucket. I am thrilled. (laughs) It's not, you know, they don't, she doesn't name the science bucket, but But I think we can all guess through, yeah, through context clues. We know who she's talking about. (laughs) Um, Because there were, you know, people... Ocean studiers, whether they were scientists or just sort of, like, rich guys who were born and had a yacht, uh, they didn't really think too much about the deep ocean. Uh, And we talked about that before as well with ocean mapping, where, like, people just didn't really, you know, as long as you understood what was going on on the surface and how that affected your, like, your ship movements. Right. How that might affect weather in some ways, then you're doing pretty good.
1: Yeah, we didn't really care and, too much until there were like boats underneath there too, right?
0: Ooh, man, you're just you're so good at this. I'm killing it. You're just you're just nailing it. I don't even need to do the rest of this episode. Oh, I'm you sorry. get it? you already you, No, 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 you're doing great. Um it's nice to know that things make sense. Yeah. Um yeah, so like they just didn't really think about it. And when, you know, pre World War One, when scientists did start to think about the deep ocean, uh, they were p- pretty much just making guesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the two kind of the two ways people might assume deep ocean water is moving around, if they think it's moving around at all, which there were debates about that. It you know mm-hmm. some people thought it was just stagnant water, yeah. essentially just sitting at the bottom and not moving. Uh, most of the people who kind of thought that it was because they believed that the only thing really controlling the vast majority of movement in the ocean was wind. And so, you know, like we've talked about before, like the wind happens because the earth moves around. And then as the wind moves over the ocean, um, it pulls the water at the surface Mm -hmm. and it pulls the water at the surface, but the earth is a sphere, not a flat disc. And that means that as it pulls the water at the surface, it will start to deflect at an angle. Mm-hmm. and as it's doing that it's making sort of like spirals of water at depth and okay. that's called Ekman um, Ekman Transport, Ekman Flow and so you have these like Ekman spirals that are pushing water in these these kind of cone shapes in the ocean and all of those cone shapes of spinning water kind of bumping into each other and either gaining in speed, gaining in size and you end up with gyres like you know, the Pacific Gyre is kind of a famous one, but mm-hmm. every ocean basin has its own gyre. And a lot of people just thought that was it. You know, we fucking, we, we got it.
1: Okay, so that, that is a thing that happens, right? But people just thought that was the only thing?
0: Pretty much. Okay. There, was, there was a group of people who were like, that's pretty much it. There might be some minor differences to what's going on based on the shape of an ocean basin, based on like some amount of density differences. But for the most part, if, you know, if you factor in the winds, you've pretty much factored in everything relevant. Okay. And the big problem with that is that that only accounts for the top couple hundred meters of water.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Below that, the wind energy is not... It's not doing like, a whole lot, just, right? It's not doing anything after like a pretty short amount of you know space, considering mm-hmm. the depth of the ocean. So for a lot of those people, they just sort of thought that, well, once the wind energy stops moving water around water stops moving around.
1: Well, that would, I guess, follow that logic, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right, where you're like, yeah, I guess if that's the only thing you think is relevant, that would be the conclusion you'd have to draw. Yeah. Um, But the other side of the picture was people who were like, well, no, that's silly. Wind, sure, wind is a thing, but density differences, you know, that's got to be what's moving water around. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where we get to the science bucket. Oh, uh, the, the kind of the main reason that some people thought that it was density driven. So like, you know, if, if one bit of water is more dense than another bit of water, the more dense water will sink Mm -hmm. and vice versa. If you have less dense water someplace, it will naturally try to raise to the, like rise to the top of a, a column of water. Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, that also makes a lot of sense. Uh, and that was like the the evidence for that was the Gulf Stream mm-hmm. was the fact that we have this really warm water off the Atlant- off the east coast of North America, so in the Atlantic Ocean. Ben Franklin comes up as like having been kind of the pioneer in measuring the temperature, which you and I understand, our <laughs> our listeners understand. That's a science bucket baby. Mm-hmm. And so if we have this, you know, this really warm water. That's not explained by the wind. Right. You know? So, if the wind can't explain the Gulf Stream, and the Gulf Stream moves really fast, it's got to be, like, the assumption was then, okay, well, whatever is moving the Gulf Stream around, which we assume is density, because Mm -hmm. it's a warmer temperature, and temperature affects the density, um, then that's got to be the main thing. Right. right? Uh, But, you know, maybe, maybe these two... Ideas don't have to exist separately, and yeah. so that was kind of the like. This is where like the little petty bullshit kind of comes in, mm-hmm. where like, um, because, at two separate points at least, scientists took like empirical evidence gathered by another group of scientists very as like a personal slight, basically. <laughs> yeah. So you have these like people who are saying like, okay, well, no wind. Wind is it. Wind is the only thing controlling controlling the the water movement there's like no other factor that is really important um then somebody else comes and says well i have all this data that says that there might be another factor we should look at uh the person who said it's wind-driven is basically hearing not hearing like oh here's more evidence here's like another thing that we need to include in our our data right they're hearing uh you're wrong yeah and then they fire off like literally there was just like a slam piece put into like the journal of nature or whatever the 18th century equivalent of that was. Uh That's like, Oh, well this person who says I'm wrong, they're a piece of shit. They're a piece of shit. Their data doesn't count. Well, and so that happens two times. (laughs) It happens uh, first with, I think in English language period articles that were um, with like data collected by some Scandinavians. Mm -hmm. And then it happens again in German language uh nature journals because I don't know because people just don't like to think that they're wrong
1: yeah well I mean <laughs> that could never happen it's... right people people aren't like that anymore
0: oh my gosh yeah we're definitely not going to mistrust data that was collected responsibly because it makes us feel silly yeah <laughs> wouldn't happen yeah hmm so because of these two like Basically because, like, the the first time it came up, somebody got really petty and mocked another scientist out of his job. And then the second time it came up, it just happened exactly the same way. People <laughs> just stopped trying. Yeah. People stopped trying for, like, 150 years or more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, fine um, then.
0: <laughs> basically. But people kind of... Like, even as people weren't actively looking into it or weren't actively theorizing about it, scientists knew that there was something more, that, mm-hmm. like, that something was missing and that, like, the question wasn't answered. People just stopped trying to answer it. And kind of the reason that people knew something something was wrong here was that um, the way the way that they had been kind of... Thinking about the ocean up till you know the 1920s, 1930s, really was that well. The ocean is fluid mm-hmm. and hard to observe, but something else that's fluid and easier to observe is the atmosphere. Okay, and so you know if we and this is you know in many ways this is still kind of is true that if you look at physical phenomenon going on in the atmosphere, very often it will correlate to the ocean mm-hmm. because. Air is essentially a fluid, um, or, it, or it behaves like a fluid when you're looking at these scales. Okay. Um, which, right, that makes sense. We have high-pressure high zones, and we have low-pressure zones of the air, mm-hmm. and where those meet up, that causes storms. So that's like a density-difference-driven phenomena. Okay. Um, and where this breaks down, though, is when you look at temperature... Mm-hmm. Because something that is, you know, pretty basic understanding of, like, physics, something that you might not even, like, we all kind of intrinsically know, even if we don't think of it as, like, something explained by physics, is that hot substances will rise, mm-hmm. and cold substances will sink. Right? Right. So, like, hot air rises, cold air will sink. This is how we get a lot of different weather phenomena. It's like, kind of the fundamental thing driving weather.
2: mm mm-hmm.
0: um, and in the air, in the atmosphere, this, this works out perfectly fine. There's no problems because our warm air actually comes from the surface of the planet. The, the sun's energy, as it comes down through the atmosphere, doesn't really have anything to heat up most of the time, right? Like air particles can't really hold heat the same way. Mm-hmm. And so it's not until the energy of the sun hits the surface of the earth... That then the rocks or the tarmac or the plants, they're now holding on to the heat and radiating it back out. Mm-hmm. And so as they radiate the heat back out, they are heating up the air at the surface of the planet. The air is getting hot. The hot air wants to rise. And so it moves up into the atmosphere where eventually it cools off. And as it cools off, then it comes back down. And so we have this like really nice set of cycles of air heating up. Rising, cooling off, falling, and then, you know, continuing on. Mm-hmm. And that's how we get things like Hadley cells that are all around the Earth is because as the Earth spins, uh, the air that is rising, much like the, the ocean water that gets hit by wind, is deflecting to one side. And then we end up with these nice kind of uniform, just parcels of air that we can look at and we can say, okay, well, this is like this Hadley cell, this pocket of air in the atmosphere at these latitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's great and all that makes sense. We have an unstable system where the hot, like the heat is coming from the bottom. And so it causes motion because the heat wants to be at the top. Great. Um, in the ocean, where's the source of heat? Is it the top? It's at the top. So, so it's like a backwards. Exactly. So like, if, if the hot water is at the top of the ocean already. There shouldn't be any any movement. There shouldn't like underneath oh, yeah. where the right the heat should just be kind of like radiating down evenly and you know dissipating, and that should pretty much be it. Uh-huh. And so if you were to look at, um, if you were to look at a graph, which I will show you shortly, of the depth of the water on the y axis on the x axis, sorry, like going up and down, mm-hmm. and you were to look at the temperature of the water. Um, you would expect it to be pretty much a straight line at first before it just levels out, mm-hmm. but you'd expect it to be a nice gradual, you know, heat leaving the water. It's getting cooler. And then it reaches whatever it's like coolest point is going to be when the heat has completely or like mostly left the water and mm-hmm. then it kind of will level out at a certain temperature. Um, what you get instead is the thermocline. Thermocline. This is the thermocline. Okay. Mm-hmm. So temperature, and then Klein is just like a, uh, like a border between two different areas. So, in this case, it's a thermocline is like the point where warm water, water stops being warm and very suddenly becomes cold. Okay. And so if you look, you know, if you look here, and if you look at you know temperature profiles taken pretty much anywhere in the ocean, you will always find this. Mm-hmm. Um, pre- like. The vast majority of places in the ocean, if there isn't like an active sink or an active rise, you're going to find the thermocline. Mm -hmm. And that's where the water at the top kind of starts around like it depends. It's warmer in the tropics. It's colder in the polar regions. Um, It's going to start around like 24, 25 degrees Celsius, um, you know, in the 70s -hmm. in Fahrenheit. Um, And then within the first 500 meters or so, it's going to suddenly drop and it's going to suddenly drop to... Less than 15 degrees Celsius. Wow. And then pretty quickly continue to drop until it hits about about 4 degrees Celsius. Uh Uh-huh. And then it's going to, like, taper off. And it's going to stay below 4 degrees Celsius for the rest of the depth of the ocean, which, you know, is kilometers. Yeah. And so in the first, like, anywhere between, you know, the first quarter of the ocean to, like, even less than that, like, you know, maybe the top, like, 5% of the water column. Mm Mm-hmm the water's just going to very very rapidly become cold that's so weird right exactly and like it shouldn't happen like that yeah if there isn't something else going on here and so you end up with scientists who have like all of these uh in the 1930s or so they create or they invent this device called a a bathothermograph mm-hmm. so batha meaning uh, pressure or depth uh thermo temperature and then graph is just like recording so you have this thing that will record temperature at depth okay um no more science bucket (laughs) it looks like a little dart i thought it was really cool because it looks like uh, another a more modern piece of equipment called an underway ctd
1: oh
0: uh and it just tells you that like sometimes you find a shape that works and every piece of technology after that's just going to keep making the same shape because it works yeah (laughs) if it ain't broke right right i mean the bath of the thermograph looks cooler because it's like bronze but yeah um and so you like with this device scientists were able to go out in boats and they were able to take measurements of the temperature in the water column for the first i'd say it was like 900 feet or so mm-hmm. so not super deep
2: but deep enough to the enough. rest of the ocean
0: yeah. oh deep enough to find the thermocline everywhere and at this point like you know it'd been about 100 years scientists still weren't actively looking for what was causing like the deep ocean circulation. Uh, some some were just not very, not very popular, not mm-hmm. very well funded. Um, but now, like you have you have this empirical data, collected by dozens of cruises, hundreds of thousands of points of somebody dropping this bathothermograph into the water, pulling it back up and getting temperature data off of it, that tell you that the thermocline exists everywhere, mm-hmm. but. What what is going on? Like, why would that be? They just kept hand waving it for honestly way too long for like another twenty years. That's so weird. even though they now have this data, yeah, they're still like, ah, eh.
1: yeah. I don't know. Who knows? People might call yeah. me mean names if I say something about it. So <laughs>
0: pretty. Oh, pretty much. It's either it's a combination of like people might be mean to me if I try to say anything otherwise. Like, like e- even in the story that we're going to look at with Henry Stommel or Stommel. I'm not sure. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Um, even in his story, it takes him a little bit longer than it would have otherwise to come out and say, this is what I have found because that stigma of, you know, every time somebody talks about deep ocean circulation, feelings get hurt is, is alive and well in the 1940s and fifties. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that is like, you know, kind of, illustrates how nervous people were about this or how like a combination of nervous for some scientists or disinterested in others is that even in Harold Spurdrop's text that we talked about a little bit, mm-hmm. um, where he put out like the first English language textbook of all, all known ocean science at the time called the oceans. Uh-huh. Pretty good um, title. <laughs> solid title, but he just sort of like hand waves away what's going on in the deep ocean um in the book he just says you know it's impossible to tell from available data whether abyssal currents are caused by density differences or if the abyssal currents were driving the density differences um but you know it that's fine we'll we'll pretty much figure it out don't worry yeah and so like you you have this massive textbook it becomes incredibly famous uh oceanographers and climate scientists all over the world are kind of calling it like the Bible for ocean science mm-hmm. and it's not explaining or attempting to explain or really attempting to like even ask questions about this massive part of like ocean the majority science. of the ocean <laughs> right, like how can you really say that you are? writing a book that represents the combined knowledge of the entire ocean when you've left out like such an important part of deep ocean systems Mm -hmm. uh and so this is where i think it's time to start to think about um military funding essentially so the military has been funding ocean science we talked about that a little bit before where yeah, they'll throw money at it. Um, there's this uh, this one particular navy admiral from the Civil War era named Matthew Fontaine Murray. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew Fontaine Murray is one of those people that when you bring him up, you have to have some pretty serious caveats.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Matthew Fontaine Murray was responsible for creating the most detailed bath uh, bathymetric maps of the coastal oceans around the United States. Mm-hmm. But. <laughs> Which is, you know, the like, to- like, topographical maps. Okay. So mapping the shape of the sea off the coast of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew Fontaine Murray also was part of the um, Confederate Navy. Oh. <laughs> and really thought slavery was just kind of fine, actually. Okay. Well, yeah. So, yeah. We don't need you can't to give him all. <laughs> too much credit. Um, the problem, I mean, many problems with this. Obviously, one of the big things that came up is that like in addition to so we have we have scientists who think that it's wind driven and that's that's it. We have scientists who think it's density driven and that's all there is to it. Matthew Fontaine Murray was one of the first people we have recorded as saying, wait a second, maybe the salinity of water is important. Maybe the salinity of water is something that we need to think about here. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, he was a Confederate. So, yeah, the rest of, of the world, <laughs> the rest of the world just kind of went wow, we really don't want to agree with this asshole. Mm-hmm. So we won't. Um, so, you know, don't have terrible views about humanity because it makes it harder to do science.
1: That's fair. Yeah.
0: And until that point, after him, like nobody really thought that the deep ocean was important to military science for a long time. Mm-hmm. Until, as you as you alluded to... Until the boats uh, could the go military, there. <laughs> until the military moved underwater. So yeah. now we have like under the sea, but instead of Sebastian the crab singing about like how cool it is to live under the water. It's, it's just submarines. Yeah. That's not so cool. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> this is where we get to kind of like what we are pondering in this chapter as we think about military spending and the ocean. Um, because without the military being really, really interested in density differences underwater there probably wouldn't have been funding to even have somebody looking at this question Mm full-time yeah so during world war one uh german u-boats became a little bit of a thing and people were worried about and if you don't know what a u-boat is don't worry i barely do either (laughs) um but it was like the precursor to a modern submarine Mm -hmm. they couldn't stay underwater for very long they couldn't go very deep but it still made the rest of the world realize that oh yeah we've been looking at we've been looking at warfare as like first just the surface mm-hmm. and then airplanes came around like okay well air combat's a thing we might want to look at and now there's this understanding that oh like the the entirety of the ocean isn't just the surface of the ocean right
2: mm-hmm.
0: the entirety of the ocean is three dimensional um what can we do underwater here And so as we start to look at how can the military utilize, you know, subsurface warfare, they start to realize, well, like a big problem and always a big problem when you have new technology to move military forces around is how do you communicate with those forces? Mm -hmm. Um, Which leads to a lot, like just a massive amount of military spending throughout World War II and then continuing after the war in submarine communications. And anti-submarine acoustics, so both how do we talk to our submarines? How do our submarines talk to us? How can we prevent our submarines from being heard by the enemy? and how can we try to hear the enemy submarines better? Mm-hmm. And so this is just you know a lot of just a lot of questions having to do with kind of the same basic basic understanding of how sound moves throughout a medium. Mm-hmm. The way sound moves is through density barriers. If sound hits a particular density, like if a sound is traveling through a medium, the air, you know, jello, the ocean, and that medium is at a specific density, the sound will continue to travel for a set amount of time, a set distance, a set amount of like the energy spent to make that noise, like how loud that noise is. Mm -hmm. And then if you try to take that sound through another surface, another something that is a different density, that will cause the sound to both be absorbed and kind of like muted. And it will also cause, cause the sound to uh, deflect into a different angle. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that you can also see with light. I know that was, it's kind of complicated to say, but there's ways you can kind of picture it. That, that old, like you put a pencil into a cup of water. Yeah. And if you look at the pencil, it like looks like it's broken in half sound does a similar thing Mm -hmm. and so if you're trying to talk to a submarine underwater um you want to be able to identify where that submarine is in a water mass and send signals and receive signals at the other end of the same mass of water Mm -hmm. and so there was this problem where like they were realizing oh if a submarine sends out a signal or if we like a land-based station send out a signal through this particular channel of water uh it will travel really far and they ended up like identifying this channel as the so far channel which <laughs> sounds very silly yeah um and you can see here like a bisection of the bottom of the ocean between Kaneohe Bay in Oahu and Alaska mm-hmm. where they've just identified this like massive section of water like a tunnel in the water where if they send out a signal in this tunnel of water, it will make it from Oahu in the middle of the Pacific Ocean all the way up to Alaska in the north end of the Pacific Ocean. Wow. Like, it will travel super far. Yeah. But if you're not in that channel of water, it will not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just It just won't. Um. And so now, now the military is interested. Now the military is like, oh, okay, like, we need to figure out what the fuck is going on here. Right. Because this could be the difference between, you know, in their perception, winning a war, losing a war, mm-hmm. when we have nuclear submarines just sort of like drifting around at all times as part of Operation, I think it was Operation Chrome Dome, that that might've just been the stupid B-52s flying everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need to understand like how we're tracking our own people because you can't lose track of a submarine with nuclear tipped ballistic missiles. Yeah. That would be a bad time. It doesn't look good. They've Russia done it did though, that once. right? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I mean, every- yes. Yeah. It <laughs> it's
1: been done quite a bit.
0: Yeah, Russia definitely lost one, and that's a whole like weird story about how the U.S. built a giant crane game to float out into the ocean to to pick those up, mm-hmm. and and kind of almost succeeded, which is weird. <laughs> um, and it was through this like massive influx of military funding that Henry Stommel ended up like not single-handedly, but ended up leading a very small team. That managed to, like, answer the question of what is causing the thermocline? What is causing ocean, mo- like, deep ocean movement? Despite the fact that Henry Stommel only had a bachelor's of science in astronomy. Whoa. When he started working on this. Well, I mean, Sverdrup was a meteorologist, right? Yeah, but he had also, like, gone on, like, several ocean cruises. Like, okay. he had done, like, Arctic expeditions and stuff. And, yeah. And had, you know, had a lot of time. I mean, it was because he was from a very wealthy family Mm -hmm. but he had spent a lot of time just like at sea and looking at the ocean henry stommel had like as far as i can tell uh never really considered oceans or ocean science specifically until he was hired okay (laughs) um and so you have this guy he was 22 when he was hired by woods hole oceanographic institute which is kind of the East Coast version of Scripps, though I have never been to either of these, and I'm sure there's some sort of personal beef between them that or will probably. come up if I compare the two. <laughs> I don't know. Um, whatever. It's, it's another big oceanographic institute. Mm-hmm. It is one of the first in the country. It's in Massachusetts. We'll talk about it more another time. Um, in 1942, Henry Stommel had like earned his bachelor's in astronomy, at Yale. And then he spent a couple years kind of working towards a graduate degree while being an assistant instructor before Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute started putting out these, you know, um, calls for people to, to consider joining them. Mm-hmm. Because the military was putting all this money into these institutions, but there weren't a lot of ocean scientists to draw from. Right. Right. Up to this point, it had not been a lucrative field. So you have more money coming in and then you have scientists to do the work and you start just hiring
1: a little bit of whoever. Yeah, and they did have scientists who could do the work, but they wouldn't give them clearances. So
0: Yeah, yeah, there was that too. There were a lot of foreign scientists trying to get work that were denied. Um, unlike all of those German rocket scientists. Oh yeah. Anyways. <coughs> um so nineteen forty two he graduates, nineteen forty four, he ends up working at HUI. Uh, which is how I'm going to refer to Woods Hole. <laughs> yeah, it's just get used to hearing that one. Um, and Stommel agreed to this job. I think he would just gotten married or was about to get married, um, so he kind of felt like he needed more money than he was getting as mm-hmm. a as a you know a graduate student. But he didn't love it because he had some serious qualms about like assisting in the war effort. Okay. And this is like reportedly in many ways like a reoccurring theme in Henry Stommel's life where he will say that he doesn't really like the idea of working for the military or working for the government but then he does all this really incredible work for the military and the government. Right. Um. To his credit, he did like when given the the opportunity to kind of pick which type of science he would do, he decided that he would try researching anti-submarine warfare specifically because at the very least if you're helping them Take out submarines. There's a much much lower chance that there's going to be civilian casualties.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So right, There's yeah. I mean, yeah, Not
1: a lot of civilians hanging out in the ocean.
0: Yeah, but very very sometimes. unlikely. <laughs> Every once in a while. Uh, but that was how he justified to himself. And I, you know, I get it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And almost immediately, he became like kind of a wonder kid. Um, I don't think they expected much from him. Uh, and that kind of gave him some free range for the first few years to just do a little bit of everything.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One thing that he um, he would kind of help with and like actually start making a name for himself with was identifying what we now call Western boundary circ bound West oh my gosh Western boundary currents okay um which are as you might guess currents that run along the west side of oceans okay yeah i could have guessed that one uh and that like seems like kind of an obvious thing like the gulf stream is on the western side of the atlantic and it's a western boundary current Mm -hmm. um but he realized that they were everywhere he was looking at this surface data that people were publishing about the velocities of currents at this like at the top few hundred meters of the ocean and he realized that you could find these currents Everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere in the ocean, where there's a, like, a western coastline for it to bump up against, mm-hmm. there will be a boundary current. Okay. Um, which, again, it's one of those things where it seems kind of obvious, but just up to this point, nobody had really, like, looked at them and thought to kind of explain them mathematically. Right. And, you know, maybe because his background was in astronomy and not in ocean science... Henry did seem to have a way of looking at ocean problems and just saying, "Well, let's just make it into math." Yeah. Let's take all, all that ocean the baggage math out of it. Tells us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let's take all that like all of these things we just understand, all these like old kind of like beliefs that maybe are more based on like mythologizing things.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what if we just turn everything into numbers? And then right, and it makes to me it makes sense uh that coming from astronomy you know, where the only way we understand stars in the galaxy, especially before we had any of these high-powered telescopes, and even now with the high-powered telescopes, the only way we really, like, identify and understand space is through math. Mm-hmm. It is through looking at physics and, like, the physics of light and the physics of sound. Um, and so Henry took that and he applied it to the ocean. And that meant that he was able to come up with a kind of mathematical explanation for like a physics explanation for these boundary currents. Mm -hmm. And after the war in the 1950s, the Navy was kind of looking for people to lead up teams to look more into the deep sea. Uh, At this point, we're still worried about the acoustics, even though we've kind of figured out some of the basics. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we've also added in the what do we do with all this nuclear waste of it all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so as they began to look for more areas to dump nuclear waste into the ocean, they wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to immediately pop back up on the coast. <laughs> okay. And because, because Henry had been, you know, really pivotal in understanding this particular type of current at the western boundaries, the Navy said, why don't you do it? Right? Mm-hmm. The Navy and Huey put Henry in charge of looking at deep sea currents all over the globe. He looks like uh, a white guy. Yeah, I don't know how else to describe him. Yeah, he's got a white guy energy. He does have jowls. He has a little bit of a Nixon going on. Yeah, but kinder, a kinder looking Nixon. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, he was just like very pleasant to be around. Which That's you love good. to read? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so Henry comes to this. He's got an understanding of Western boundary currents. In looking at Western boundary currents, he actually makes these these models. He gets really good at drawing things and like diagramming the math mm-hmm. and then diagramming it in a way that you can then test, which is another thing that I like, I associate with physics and like the physics classes that I've taken. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see here that he has like come up with this idea of kind of like how water must move around on a spherical surface. And then we have our diagram where he's just drawn water moving from kind of the Eastern part of a section over to the west, bumping up into the wall of his his diagram, which would be like a coastline, like the Atlantic, mm-hmm. um, and then running down that wall, which would be poleward, if this were on the globe, before deflecting back east. And so he's, like, diagrammed this kind of route water will travel. And after diagramming it, him and his team made a physical model. They made a little tank of water in the same shape as his diagram, and they spun it around, mm-hmm. like, on a big rotating table <laughs> and would drop colored dye into it. And what oh, you okay, see in the colored dye on. is that it did exactly what he said it would do. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. So, like, he, he drew, he would draw out things before he would test them in a lab setting. Mm-hmm. And that, like, that really sets him apart. And that becomes, like, a version of what he is known for. Um, being able to explain something with math and then prove it with models. Just mm-hmm. not usually how things worked in ocean science. Most of the time you would like build a model of an ecosystem you were trying to study and then it, try to work backwards from what you were seeing.
1: Right. Which doesn't always work out.
0: It does not always work out because you don't always know what you're not seeing.
1: Right. And right. you don't know if it scales in the same way and all
0: that. Right. And whereas if you're working with math, math can be scaled, mm-hmm. right? If you're doing math well, which before, you know, before modern computers wasn't always easy. Um, But you should be able to take something you can explain with, like, variables, uh, plug in numbers, and just scale it up as needed. Mm -hmm. And this is what Henry would do with deep ocean currents. He would take this, like, understanding of boundary currents and this, like, understanding that had, you know, that had come from the discovery of the thermocline. And he would... Use those together in a way that other scientists kind of hadn't been willing to put stuff together for a long time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Basically, where this is where there's like a lot, like just a lot of math that I'm not going to attempt to explain. Okay. So I'm going to be a lot of physics <clears> concepts <throat> here that I just, I don't, I'm not a physicist. I'm not a physics instructor in any way, nor would I ever try to be. Mm-hmm. But I would need to draw a lot of pictures and read through the chapter like eight more times before I even started trying to explain this correctly. Yeah, that's not necessary. <laughs> yeah, no, we're gonna we're gonna simplify it. We're gonna simplify it a lot. So other scientists looked at the thermocline and were like, well, that's weird. Can't explain that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Henry looks at the thermocline and says, What would make hot water stay on the top? Other people had been saying, why isn't the heat sinking down?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Henry says, No. We just we know it's on top of the water. Let's not ask why it isn't moving down. Let's ask what is holding it up. Mm -hmm. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. So if if the heat from the water is getting trapped at the top of the ocean, something is trapping it. Yeah. And so in kind of like in Henry's thinking is like, well, what could possibly be trapping this hot water at the top? And if you break it down in, like, the way physics is kind of drawn out in diagrams, it's all just arrows. Mm. You have arrows for, like, the direction of energy in a system. So you have a downward arrow for the hot water trying to sink or trying to, like, spread down. Then there must be an upward arrow. Like, that is how you equalize a system. There must be something moving up and pushing up against the hot water. Mm -hmm. And in this case, we know it has to be cold water because that's what's below it. And so that was kind of, like, you know, as simple as it sounds, other researchers just hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. I mean, sometimes and they they sometimes you just do need, like, fresh eyes to look at something. Right, exactly. And this has been a, you know, what you said <clears> before, <throat> like, there's just still this ocean baggage. So mm. they just hadn't been getting fresh eyes on it. Um, there was also all this, like, other ocean science that you could do with this new, you know, new equipment and new technology made it possible to just look at other stuff. And so that's what people were doing. Mm-hmm. Um not Henry. He's here to figure this shit out. So essentially, he thinks about the problem in this new way. He thinks about like the salinity profiles that they've been getting. He thinks about the temperature profiles. He thinks about these boundary currents. And he comes up with this model to explain that there is cold water that isn't just sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of like this found foundational thing that Henry Stommel just decides must be the thing he, he just sort of like has this intuition that like well if the hot water's not dissipating downwards there's got to be cold water pushing up against it mm-hmm. and if there's cold water pushing up against it i'm gonna figure out where that's coming from and this is where like as he's putting out his his findings or his like it's not even findings right because he hasn't proven any of this he's just doing the math to like justify it mm-hmm he is very very carefully wording all of the research papers that are going out from him and his, his main um scientific partner aaron um to try not to ruffle feathers <laughs> so as he's putting this stuff out there's a lot of like this isn't a you know this is not a hypothesis because a hypothesis needs to be like really founded and really like well studied mm-hmm. this is just an interpretive model for what might be going on okay um it's which just is a just theory, his way of... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like you know that that theory means a different right. thing yeah, in yeah. the realm of science. Yeah, but exactly, right, exactly that. He is just like couching all of this in the most careful language he can. Um, but essentially, he like just comes up with him and his team come up with a mathematical explanation for if we assume there is cold water creating an upward force against this hot water, which is the opposite of what you expect if you're like. You know, just thinking about how hot water and cold water move.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but if there is, if there's cold water pushing up against the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of the surface, um, then we can make an equation to calculate how much water that must be, how fast the cold water must be moving upward. And when he did that, and they can't, you know, like, I know, like, I'm, again, absolutely not going to try to, like, shake out how that happened. Mm-hmm. They come up with this equation and they find in that equation that this, you know, constant upward, it's called diffusion as the water cold, of cold water, as it kind of like slowly seeps up, must be happening almost everywhere in the ocean at a speed of 0.5031, Zero point zero 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 three one centimeters per second. Mm-hmm. So like, immeasurably small. Not too small to figure out with math, but too small for our instruments to pick up Mm -hmm. at the time, right? And it sounds too small to be, like, relevant, but if you think about the entirety of the ocean, and then you calculate, you know, uh, 3.1 to the negative, to the negative fifth, 10 to the negative fifth, whatever. Um, centimeters per second across the entirety of the ocean it comes out to 90 million cubic meters per second mm-hmm. which is quite That's a bit a little bit more larger. significant yeah <laughs> Yeah, sounds a little bit bigger um, and he just this is again just like just an algorithm just a calculation that he put out and everybody in the world of oceanography uh, did not immediately clap and cheer they kind of scratched their heads and went yeah well Maybe. <laughs> Maybe that's the thing that's going on. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't be until, I think it was like 20 years later, that his theory was proven correct. Science, like the instrumentation got uh, good enough that we actually found that, yeah, there is, right, we both have water that sinks all the way to the bottom that we call like, there's Antarctic bottom water and North Atlantic bottom water. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that that's happening. But there's also water that sinks throughout the ocean into like the middle depths. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have like North Atlantic deep water is what I have here. There are other sources of like what is called the deep water, but not bottom water. (laughs) Okay. Um, I know. Yeah. Like such a bottom. Uh, And because we have these like different sections of water that aren't just moving like all the way down or all the way up, they're just kind of constantly like blobbing together and trying to reach an equilibrium that they'll never reach mm-hmm. and that results in water slowly also pushing back up against the hot water at the surface okay um this is crazy uh, yeah. <laughs> never nobody else had ever before nor since in the like in the realm of ocean science used math to just sort of like predict a phenomena that would be proven correct later mm-hmm. um, and the only person who's ever done it Again, only ever had a bachelor's (laughs) in astronomy. He would end up getting, like, honorary PhDs because, like, yeah, I fucking hope so. But uh, he never, like, he never went back to school. Because at some point when he, like, was considering going back for, like, a real PhD, everybody in his life kind of went, why, though? Yeah. Like... At that, the, at the point that he was considering it, he was already either had just been the person who identified Western boundary currents or was about to publish this work. So people in his life were just like, what could you possibly learn going mm-hmm. back for a PhD that you aren't clearly already picking up right now?
1: Right. And inventing. I mean, like, yeah, exactly, it seems like you'd be right? going like, backwards to go and learn from people who know exactly. less than you.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. And so, like, he never did. He has honorary degrees. He, you know, he lived until 1992. Oh, he actually died like 9 months before I was born. Hmm. Um, which is I don't know. <laughs> I don't necessarily believe in reincarnation, and if I did, I wouldn't think I was his reincarnation cuz I'm really bad at math. Mm. Um, but I thought it was funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that's that's Henry Stommel predicting oceanography. And in this whole chapter, we haven't really touched too much on the military other than them like, the, kind of the, the takeaway that Dr. Eskes leaves us with is in this story, the military wasn't hindering science. Mm-hmm. The military is actually the, like, military funding, military interests. Actually, the only reason an astronomer from Yale ends up at, you know, this Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts where he, he finds this thing that is, like, it's not only like foundational and like revolutionary for ocean science, but it becomes incredibly important for climate science. Mm. When people talk about snowball earth or what happens if the oceans stop uh like you know if the ice sheets melt all the way and there's no new cold water going into the ocean, the reason people think about these things and worry about whether or not it will be, you know, a serious problem is only because Henry Stommel predicted this exact phenomenon predicted Mm -hmm. deep ocean circulation understood that this must be moving these masses of water around. And it is these masses of water moving around like so slowly that drives global climate. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And so it's kind of a, like, we're going to talk a lot more about times the military's funding of ocean science was real fucked up, Mm -hmm. but this is kind of a case for, you know, maybe I wouldn't say it's a case for like being okay with military funding of science, but I think it is a case for like the government needs to spend more.
1: Right. Yeah. I look at what happens when you throw some money at stuff like yeah, this. Exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look at what get happens <laughs> when you
0: just give people a bunch of money and ask them a really like open-ended science question.
1: Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, the, old, the military things. is the only you know organization that has that kind of <laughs> money and exactly. power to do crap like that, but.
0: That's kind of my takeaway is like this is such an incredible story. Would't it be even more incredible if that didn't have to be tied to the military? yeah, you know if it could just be a <clears throat> be a thing that is expected for the government to fund equally fund just good science right and good research was any of this stuff classified at the time? um I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think the next chapter actually is specifically oh yeah the next chapter chapter three is titled like whose data is it anyways Mm -hmm. um and it is specifically about that which came up a little bit in chapter one as well just Mm -hmm. if the military is funding your research does it make it the military's research Mm -hmm. does the military have the right to classify this data (laughs) they would say
1: yes
0: (laughs) uh yeah you know our experience would indicate um yes yes indeed um i actually have heard at the University of Washington as well this was a problem in i think the 90s mm-hmm. and i'm not sure if i'm not sure if science on a mission is going to cover all the way up through there um, this was a thing as well like the ONR the op- uh, office of oh god office of naval research mm-hmm. uh still funds most oceanography happening and they still will absolutely contract out like top secret research to public institutions that's mm-hmm. a public institution i would argue that should be public data right <laughs> Um, a lot of scientists would argue that that should be public data because it also means that they can put their name on it and that helps them get more funding for other research and get, right. helps them get known yeah
1: I feel, in general a lot of a lot more stuff should probably just be public just generally yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah the the military sure does like to label something like a national security interest
1: mm hmm <laughs> Oh, what's this really uh, cool thing? Um no, that's ours now. National security that's interest, ours.
0: yeah, I don't know. Somebody might try to like use that for public good. yeah, <laughs> can't know. have that uh and that's well, that's this chapter
1: that's exciting i'm I'm excited to meet new characters.
0: I think i what's been fun for me is actually seeing characters kind of come back, so like seeing Harold's Verdre mentioned again, mm-hmm. um the science bucket, obviously, of course, a favorite. Uh, and I think Henry Stommel will actually be very present in the next chapter as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm kind of wondering if we ever come back to Roger Revelle.
0: Oh, we almost definitely will. Like, okay. I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't. I haven't been reading ahead, which maybe I should for the sake of, like, organizing things. But I like to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got to come back. He's, like, a huge name in ocean science. Right. So I'm I'm assuming it might just take until, like another chapter that covers the west coast again where Mm. i think the next one is going to be more about the east coast science that's going on
1: okay well cool Mm -hmm.
0: and i did it i managed to cut out most of the math explaining
1: i think you did a good job thank you i understood that i
0: hope well that's you know and that really is the mark of having not completely fucked this up and i appreciate your presence here
1: Mm -hmm. so -hmm. much well um yeah. Uh that was that was real neat. Oh, did actually did they ever figure out uh, you know, the answer to where where do we put the nuclear waste? Oh, they put it in the ocean. And and it just did they find a specific place where it doesn't flow back up with his math? Um
0: <laughs> there were I don't know if they used his math specifically. I had I've actually looked into this for a an undergraduate research pro project that I did
2: mm-hmm.
0: and was shocked shocked, I say, to find out that actually like a lot of studies have been done. In the past, uh, actually since Fukushima, Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of studies have been done in the past decade about how dangerous it is to have nuclear waste in the ocean. And most of them have found that it's actually kind of okay. Yeah, I mean, weirdly enough, I would have to there's a lot of ocean, a lot of. So that's part of it is that there's just a whole (coughs) lot of ocean. Um, The other part of it is that ocean life doesn't seem to be as 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 right negatively impacted as terrestrial life by radiation Mm -hmm. and the uh so when we talk about salt we're not just talking about like table salt um any combination of a positive ion and a negative ion together is a salt Mm -hmm. i think (laughs) um and so in the ocean there's a lot of different types of salts Mm -hmm. and a lot of them i think it turns out are really good at absorbing radiation and kind of like uh de-radiating it. I don't think that's the right word. Oh. Um and so they they definitely found like there were I think like eight locations in the oceans where a bunch of different countries were just like allowed to dump nuclear waste products. Mm-hmm. And like those waste products aren't like a green sludge or barrels of green sludge. Um more often than not it is like graphite rods are part of it, but mostly it was like if you Decommissioned a nuclear power plant. Oh. You would have a bunch of irradiated cement that was just like the floor of the nuclear power right. plant. Right. Yeah. Just all these and building then, materials. Right. And so you would take that irradiated cement, you would put it into a, you know, a lead line storage container, like shipping container, and then you would fill that with fresh cement. Mm-hmm. And then you would sink this like big block of cement and lead into the ocean. Hmm. Um, and it's been found that like you can absolutely, like if you lower a desometer or, like, whatever they actually use to record Mm -hmm. uh, uh, radiation into the seafloor near these areas, you can absolutely pick up, like, radioactive water.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But it's only for, like, a few meters around the waste site. It doesn't travel very far through the water. Water is, like, a really good insulator. Mm -hmm. Um, Deep-sea currents are kind of slow enough that it doesn't get very far, and by the time it moves pretty far, it's already... Just a lot of the radiation is no longer present. Mm-hmm. Uh, so weirdly enough, that you know that would be something I would absolutely talk about more at depth after having time to look at the papers again. But mm-hmm. it, yeah, they dumped they dumped a bunch of radioactive waste into the ocean until like the nineteen eighties or nineties, and as far as scientists could tell, at least like five years ago, it's mostly fine.
1: Well. It's, it's actually kind of okay. That's that's good, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where, like, I'm happy to hear it, but I was also very surprised. Me too. They accidentally did okay, I think.
1: <laughs> well, that's that's rare, but we love to see it.
0: And let's end on a an accidentally positive note. <laughs> Until next time, Sam, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye.